Hi, this is Trump Watch. I'm Amy Willens, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, sitting in for John Wiener. I'm talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll be talking to China expert Jeff Wasserstrom, who'll tell us what Donald Trump doesn't know about China. And riots and roadblocks and arson and other violence erupted in Haiti this past week. Will a new wave of Haitian immigrants try to get to Trump's United States? We'll discuss it with illustrious Haiti watcher James North. First up, we're going to talk about the World Cup and the meaning of the game. We're speaking with Laurent Dubois, a professor at Duke University and director of the Forum for Scholars and Publics there. He's also the author of The Language of the Game, How to Understand Soccer, among other books. He has a great blog called Soccer Politics. Laurent and I are also talking with Alan Minsky, who's here in the studio. He's program director at KPFK and a founding member of the People's Game Football Collective. We're talking about the World Cup. The semifinals finished yesterday. The sport The Cup is a sports event that causes madness around the globe and also makes us reflect on the character of the countries that are playing. Hi, Laurent. Hey, it's great to be on tonight. I'm so glad you're here. uh, Afternoon for you tonight for me. Exactly. Hi, Alan. Hey, Amy. Great to be with you and Laurent. Um, Thanks both for being with us today. Laurent, especially who's in France and it's midnight, but I bet he's still really up from watching the semifinal on Tuesday where his two (laughs) favorite teams addressed each other and France beat Belgium. (laughs) How was that experience for you, Laurent? Uh, It was an intense one. I mean, it's kind of, I couldn't quite imagine uh, having those two teams play against each other and sort of figuring out how to navigate that. But I was in Paris watching it and, um, in the end, was really thrilled with uh, the victory of France over Belgium and just the kind of promise of uh, of France in the final of the World Cup. Um, and I thought it was a great game as well. It was just kind of I've been uh, watching this World Cup that's kind of between some games that have been, I think, really awful and others mm-hmm. that have been really beautiful. And it was it was nice to see a beautiful one. I was uh, I watched and I wondered about you. I wondered whether you felt ecstasy every moment or tragedy every moment. <laughs> Um, in that case, I mean, it's somehow I think sometimes I just had to go in and feel what I was going to feel. Um, <laughs> I've really enjoyed watching the Belgian yeah. team, but um, it sort of felt like right uh, that <laughs> that France would win in that case. Alan, so, what did you uh, think? Well, we were calling it in the people's game. We were calling it the Laurent Dubois Derby. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to, oh, t- I was actually going to text uh, Laurent the uh, congratulations period, condolences period. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's perfect. Um, you know, I was thinking as I watched, and I know you've thought a lot about this, uh, about all the uh, players of African origins who are rushing around the field, playing brilliantly for France and Belgium, two of the countries who have the worst histories in Africa. I mean, what do you make of all this kind of multiculturalism on the imperial teams? I mean, that that's one of what, you know, has always fascinated me about both of them, right, is that these are in countries that have often really not, have, you know, not really confronted, for, for sure, um, the colonial past in any sort of sustained way. Um, you have these teams that, in a sense, you know, both kind of on a, on a, surf, on a surface level, but also just in undercurrents, kind of force 
that question onto the onto the pitch and then into the larger political life. And you know, there have been players, um, particularly in France, but also to some extent in, in Belgium, um, who have used the fact that they're kind of prominent on the national team to to address these things. The most kind of prominent is Lily Antaram, who's a player that I've I've come to know, who after his retirement has really dedicated himself to anti-racist education. He curated an exhibit on colonialism at the Keb Holly. Um, so there have been some figures who've you know utilized the fact that they became legendary through the sport to do you know the kind of work of actually historical um, reconstruction mm-hmm. and, uh, and kind of forcing that. So at the same time, of course, I mean, it, it, what's interesting is that both teams and notably France. Um, you know, I've talked to a bunch of colleagues in Africa where there's always this sort of thing that, like, France is, you know, the last, is the last African team in the tournament. And <laughs> people are, you know, although it's ambiguous in many ways, many people, I think, are also proud to have these figures um, who they see also as Africans playing in the, in the World Cup final. But not the national front, for example. Uh, the founder used to say that the, the team had too many non-white players. Do you think that's still mm-hmm. a feeling on the right in France? You know, in Interestingly, I'm sorry, Alan, did you want to weigh in on that? Or, oh, no, no, please. Uh, uh, go ahead, Laurent. Um, uh, interestingly, you know, it hasn't been... So Marine Le Pen, who is Jean-Marie Le Pen's right. um, daughter, has, has not made those points this time. It's actually much more muted. You, you get a lot less of that now, which I think is kind of interesting. I mean, Le Pen played a really sort of important role in making the French team a political symbol when he attacked them in 1996. Um, saying, you know, they were foreigners, which is, of course, a lie, but also it's critiquing them for not singing the Marseillaise. He really helped actually make that team into a political symbol because before that, French teams had also been very multi-ethnic all, all the way to their beginnings, but no one had ever turned that into kind of a, an anti-racist political point. Um, Le Pen kind of enabled that. So in a certain way, um, you know, and that's been going on now for the last 20 years, um, the idea that the team itself is a kind of uh, a, a riposte to racism. Um, and again, Turam and other figures have kind of built on that. I think what's happening now, of course, is, is it's a sort of different era in some ways. And part of it's just simply that, you know, the truth of France is sort of in some ways presented in this team, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's the fantasy of, of France that the far right images that sort of France has been and could be a, a space that's somehow white or somehow only European, when in fact, obviously, um, it's a global space. It's a space completely shaped by its colonial history. And in some ways, you know, the, what the, the team does is kind of just sort of make that clear. It's a forcible truth. Right. They've um, outpaced, the they've outpaced yeah. the thinking on the right. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, obviously that has to be, that can only be transformed into kind of political work precisely by making it into political work. It's not automatically. And obviously when the team does badly, it's very easy for racists to then, you know, blame the black players for it. So it's certainly a a two-sided coin. But, you know, that plus just the kind of crowds, the ways in which the sort of celebrations allow for, you know, a certain kind of investment of public space and just kind of presentation of France. For mixing in public in the crowd, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think those are important forces. I mean, you know, one shouldn't overestimate necessarily what the impact they have political, politically, but they are, at least they offer a kind of sense of an alternative. Well, Alan, the French are now going to meet the Croatian team uh, on on. Sunday? Well, let me just say that they, oh, yeah. they, of course, met once before famously in the World mm-hmm. Cup in 1998 in France. And a person that uh, Laurent has mentioned already was uh, the absolute hero of that match, uh, Lillian Thuram. He was a defender who I believe had never scored for the national team previously. Croatia scored yeah, the first. Again. Uh, and right? never again. And never again. Croatia scored the first goal of the game shortly after halftime. And Lillian Thuram, who felt himself somewhat in error in the Croatian goal, that was allowed, mm-hmm. um, came back and scored two goals to have France make 
uh, its first ever World Cup final, which they, of course, went on to win over Brazil. So Lillian Thuram was the hero of the moment. But as as uh, as Laurent said, his name will certainly be evoked now because mm-hmm. of that match, certainly mm-hmm. the most famous contest previously between France and Co- Croatia. But uh, it does take an act of political will then to uh, bring in some of the themes that Lillian Thuram has, has brought up previously. It probably won't be mentioned much that aspect right. of it in the mass right. media. And just the goals will be remembered. Yes. But, you know, I was... Looking at the French team and the Belgian team, and then I looked at the Croatian team, and because Croatia did not have a great empire, it has a very white team. Is that going to be a meaningful thing to fans, to anyone? To if if one beats the other, will that will people reflect on that or not? Alan, you want to? I mean, I think. Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. please, Laurent. Go. Laurent. Laurent. I mean, I, I do. There is just this sort of way in which the French team, in particular, but also the Belgian team. Um, again, I mean, I think obviously Senegal was in this World Cup um, earlier, and you know, unfortunately, didn't progress into the next round. Actually, Senegal playing with eight players who were French, you know, French Senegal dual citizens, but grew up in France. Um, I mean, there's this tight connection, obviously, between African and, and French, you know, countries. And I think there is a way in which people do see the French team as a kind of black team, as a team that kind of expresses, you know, a kind of African identity. Um, a lot of the players sort of popular on social media, someone like Pogba, several are Muslims, you know. So there is a way in which, for all that, it's, of course, representing France, which was this colonial country, but I think people see in the players a kind of truth about the present day, which is people who are crossing borders, who have multiple identifications. And, um, you know, so that I think enables, it's like, you know, you're rooting, what are you rooting for when you root for France? Well, you could be rooting for the country, but you can also be rooting for the players in a certain kind of way and, and what they symbolize. We're talking with Alan Minsky, founding member of the People's Game Football Collective, and Laurent Dubois, author of The Language of the Game, How to Understand Soccer. Um, I was curious, you know, this this all took place in Russia, and I was wondering whether you think the successful, untroubled World Cup competition uh, is an international triumph for Vladimir Putin. Alan? Oh, I would think definitely yes. I think it's naive to think otherwise. Laurent? Um, oh, certainly. I mean, I think it'll be used. You know, it, it, it's certainly the case that it's interesting, of course, because tournaments, the last couple of tournaments have always been preceded by a sense of, of doom. Um, this was the true in South Africa. It was true in Brazil. It was true in Russia. And then each one of them actually kind of unfolded, you know, in ways that I think people were surprised people in some ways, you know. And each of those governments in different ways tried to kind of use that to their to their effect. I mean, I think that's definitely the case. Um, and, uh, you know, and the consequences of that, the, the sort of mobilization, also the kind of use of Mohammed Salah politically during the tournament. I mean, there's been a lot of these kind of undercurrents um, that, you know, are, off, are all, always kind of overshadowed to some extent by the drama of the World Cup. But no doubt those are parts of the, the legacy that have to be thought about. Can you, can you both talk a little bit about Brazil and what it means to the developing world, its, its team? I know that in Haiti, Brazil's loss was one of the things that helped spark the riots. Um, really? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, yeah. that's odd because it would actually throw back to you because Brazil, of course, has been one of the occupying powers of Haiti. I know. I was amazed, but the, the identification with the Brazilian team was enormous. The Latin American thing overrode yeah. everything. Well, my, my, my thought first is that I think when you do go into almost any World Cup cycle, there's every team and then there's Brazil. 
and there's sort of an international discourse on the quality of this Brazilian team versus previous Brazilian teams. I actually thought this was a very good Brazilian side. Um, however, Belgium had a brilliant first half and were able to expose some flaws. And also, um, unlike Brazil, I think the Belgian manager was readjusting his team tactically and was able to exploit flaws there. Um, but then again, the French coach uh, really played a played his hand beautifully against the Belgian side in the next match. Yeah. But um, I, I think that uh, with what Laurent just said about the previous two World Cups, I actually felt that uh, Brazil's loss to Germany, which was just an overwhelming national trauma, 7-1 to one in the semifinal, there's never been a late World Cup match with that kind of route, at least not since mm -hmm. the 50s or something, and never one where the home nation, the favored nation, got routed like that, that that actually was, uh, had a negative impact on Dilma and her status as the leader of the society. Of course, oh, she was basically overthrown in a coup. Right. Well, that's enough for me, but <laughs> Laurent, your reflections on Brazil and its place in the yeah. hearts of the political subconscious of the world. Yeah, I mean, no, that's a really good point you just made. But, um, I mean, absolutely, you know, Brazil is sort of, you know, one of Haiti's national teams, Argentina being the other, depending on where you are in Haiti. Um, but uh, there's always been this sense, I think, you know, going just going back to the 50s, that Brazil was the team, you know, if you want to call it from the global south, it was a team that had, again, early on, really prominent, successful players of African descent. And so it was just embraced, I think, as a kind of global symbol, um, to some extent, of a kind of, you know, a less powerful nation kind of taking on these European countries. And what's interesting, of course, is that that whole dynamic has shifted. I mean, again, in um, you know, in 2006, when Brazil played France, like the French team had more black players on it than the Brazilian team, for instance. You know, or so you have this kind of interesting interplay where the the European, the sort of Latin American European matchups are are complicated to some extent in that in that way. At the same time, of course, there is something depressing about getting to the finals of the World Cup and it always being these European teams dominating. Right. And it's a kind of reminder that um, you know the wealth in Europe and the kind of centrality of of of, of the professional soccer game in Europe all gives these countries a kind of leg up in a certain way, even against, you know, a country like Brazil. So there's, you know, I think the questions of infrastructure, of wealth, all those sorts of things, you know, they, they're never far from the surface in the World Cup, and they do affect, obviously, you know, what, what's, what's done um, in this era. So I think, I mean, that's always, that's always important. I think the, you know, so the Brazilian loss um, to Belgium was sort of an example of that. Right. Um, and as as much as I was rooting for Belgium in that game, you know, could sort of see that there's sort of th there's a, there's a problem there to some extent, and you then end up with a kind of more anemic, you know, and maybe less global World Cup than you might want to imagine, which is then why you know people have to kind of take solace to some extent in like at least the French team being sort of global in a way. But um, it would be kind of cooler if you know it was a France Senegal final, which is what I was hoping for. Mm, that would be fun, Alan. Yeah. Well, I think also one of the problems with Brazil 2018, too, was an awareness that there right now is something on the order of a right-wing coup taking place in that country and the sense that the sitting government, the one that overthrew Dilma and has Lula in jail, <coughs> would try to take advantage of a World Cup victory, uh, sort of made the sense of a Brazilian success sour. Maybe. Similarly, uh, maybe this is not a bad World Cup for the United States to have missed who would really want to be in a bar full of right, uh, Trump people supporter. chanting USA, <laughs> USA right now. But, you know, yeah. it's interesting the way you talk about it because, it, to me, who has come new to the game since that was the first game I ever watched all the way through, France versus Belgium. Sorry to admit it, <laughs> folks out there listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, it was a good choice to be followed by the Croatia-England game. That was also a great uh, game. They've got you now. <laughs> I know, I'm sucked in. But the way you guys talk about it is as if it's not about 
a game, but about world politics, like mm-hmm. so that the Brazil game becomes about Lula being in jail now, and if they played on Brazil's turf now, it would be weird, and it would be hard to root for them. And can, can I interject yeah, to take the privilege of being in studio? Because I want to throw this to Laurent too. Um, yes, and of course, no. In some senses, we as uh, political activists, we probably do have to be conscious that sometimes we can make too much of that because it isn't where the political game is really being played out. That's in the material world of economics and politics and power, right? Uh, But then I think this is very interesting around Croatia. And um, Croatia, of course, is one of the uh, major European, one major soccer power, certainly now they've reached the world stage as a major soccer power, where actual warfare is in the recent past of the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the manner in which, I mean, if you think back 100 years ago to World War I, people declared war and they went out and they acted like what today football fans act like, <laughs> you know. So there's right. some analogs there, but you can stretch it too far. And I'm interested in maybe Laurent's reflection on Croatia now on this world stage because Croatia emerged out of a nation out of the 90s Balkans war. But mm-hmm. clearly in many people's minds around the world, this is the greatest moment of, of the Croatia. history of Croatia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the sort of Croatia being here is so interesting in the sense that there is, you know, a quality to the World Cup, which is that smaller places, you know, places that you wouldn't necessarily expect um, that, you know, don't have the resources that aren't Germany or, you know, uh, um, can make it into the final. And that's exciting, you know, in a certain way. And I think... um, you know, there's just a way in which obviously the passion of a group of players and the intensity with which they've pursued this is is remarkable and, and interesting and powerful. I mean, a small country like Belgium is, is another example, but in the Croatian case, you do have that. And I think, you know, when they played in 1998, um, I mean, I, I, I tell the story in language of the game, but the, the coach of that of that team said, you know, he went into the locker room, you know, people forget they lost to France after defeating Germany in that tournament, right? Um, so it was a big deal. They defeated Germany, I think, 3 nothing. Um, and before that game, the coach basically said, you know, he had a whole tactical speech, and then he looked in the mirror and he saw that he was basically green, you know, <laughs> with sort of terror at the fact that they were about to go play Germany, and he basically said, like, you know, all right, I threw out the theory, you know, and he basically just said, like, you know, you have to go out there and play for all the people who died, you know, and that oh was God. the speech before the, you know, so there's a way in which, and I think that is powerful, you know, and obviously this is a different generation, but there's something to that. Now, obviously, in Croatia itself, this can be mobilized in lots of different complicated ways as well in terms of different nationalist agendas. So, I mean, I think, I do think, um, you know, it's true that Ellen is right, that we can kind of project this onto this. Not every person is experiencing this. At the same time, um, maybe people aren't talking about it in this way, but fundamentally this is such a major vector through which people experience their both national identities but also are reaching across them, right? Because for the most part, of course, most people who watch the World Cup are not rooting for their national team. You know, the U.S. is just kind of entering like a more normal place in that sense, right? You don't usually get to, right? I mean, right. Uh, most people. And so what happens instead is people sort of think about these other nations. They affiliate with them for different reasons. They learn about geography and politics as a kind of whole pedagogical experience. And that, I think, is why it's a really powerful and interesting force in the world, you know? It's not because it, it you know, is, is sort of institutional or structural politics. It's because it nourishes the kind of political imaginary in certain ways, and that's what's important about it. That's why I was so interested to watch it and think about it in that way. I mean, you don't get to do that really with American teams. You're rooting against, right. you know, the for the Jets, against the Patriots. It's not that meaningful, yeah, mean? really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wondered, you know, it's about to be Bastille Day. That's the big French national mm-hmm. holiday. That's on Saturday. And then they're going to play the World Cup. 
will Macron fall if the, the French lose the World Cup? It's <laughs> a good question. I doubt it exactly. Macron will certainly try to take advantage and is already trying to take advantage of the French team's success. Um, you know, as uh, as did I mean earlier earlier leaders. So um, I don't know if it's quite that drastic, you know, <laughs> but I think. But it will be it will be interesting. I mean, the 2006 defeat in the World Cup um, with Zidane, famous headbutt, was. You know, I mean, there, you can sort of think about the ways these things do affect and shape the kind of larger political landscape. Um, in, in 1998, of course, the victory came on July 12th, which meant that there was basically these three days of celebration that kind of englobed Bastille Day, you know, into... And it is interesting that it's come around that, that holiday each time. And um, the fact of the matter is, of course, the one time when you see large numbers of French people waving French flags and singing the Marseillaise isn't on a normal Bastille Day. Um, it's actually just when the French team is doing really well. You know, people don't I mean, I sing the Marseillaise, you know, in a way around soccer that I wouldn't, you know, if I was watching. I know. I had tears in my eyes when they were all singing it, and I don't think I should have. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, the song means different things. It is, after all, a revolutionary anthem, you know, and Mm -hmm. it can be mobilized for lots of different purposes. But I, I think there's something powerful about looking at a collective at that particular group um, singing that song something different than, you know, if uh, Macron's standing at a podium watching tanks go by singing it. You know, just the context matters, you know. Right, and that's why a little lefty like me can get tears in her eyes. I don't think Macron (laughs) would have that effect on me. Alan? No, I doubt it. Uh, No, beautifully put. And and I just want to encourage, again, listeners to follow Soccer Politics on Twitter. And uh, it'll be very, very interesting in particular to follow Laurent's commentary around the next few days as this unfolds. I'm really excited. I'm going to watch my third full game, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Expect welcome, to hear more from me the, on that. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so you, much. It's both exhilarating and totally awful to watch soccer. You know, you're going to have all kinds of ups and downs. I so feel that way completely. Alan? I think I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask one final question. Are you confident going into Sunday's match, Laurent? I think it's always dangerous to be to be overconfident, and actually, the French team has been really good about saying that, which is just like we're not, we haven't won. You know, like it's not. It would be silly to go in that game, especially after the English game. I mean, I do think France has some a little bit of advantage, notably the exhaustion of the Croatian players, mm-hmm. and it's a, not as deep a team. Um, and you know, France was really, really solid in their last game. But it's soccer; anything can happen. You know, there's absolutely until the until the end of the whistle blows, we won't know. In soccer, you know, I mean, anything so. can happen. Thank you so much for joining us at this late hour, Laurent, and thank you, Alan, for coming in. Thank you. These are strum about China. But this is Trump Watch. I'm Amy Willens, live in L.A. on KPFK, sitting in for John Wiener, who's away this week. It's the same old story. So later in this hour, Haitians rioting over a proposed hike in the cost of gasoline. But what lies behind the worst unrest the country has seen since the fall of Baby Doc's dictatorship in 1986? First, we're going to talk to Jeff Wasserstrom, who will tell us all the things Donald Trump doesn't know about China. Uh, As usual, there are a lot of things. Jeff teaches modern Chinese history at UC Irvine, and he's the author of China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, which was published earlier this year in an updated third edition. He also just published a piece in The Nation called The Dark Side of the Chinese Dream. Hi, Jeff. 
Hi. Great Hi, to be thank, on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I just wanted to remind our listeners that at various times, Trump has touted his relationship with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Shortly after he assumed the presidency, Trump invited Xi to Mar-a-Lago for a very buddy-buddy intimate series of events and for dinner. And little Arabella Kushner, the teeniest Trump on Trump Watch, sang to the Chinese official in Mandarin. You've argued that uh, Trump's love of dictatorship and his tendency to flatter strongmen generally help bolster Xi and Putin and others like them, rather than helping the U.S. to deal with certain Chinese excesses. Can you tell us a little about what these excesses have been in recent uh, times? Well, the most, the most worrying excess right now to be focused on is what's being done to the Uyghurs, um, an ethnic group in far northwest of China, living in an area much larger than Texas. Um, most of them are Muslim. And during the last several months, um, hundreds of thousands of them, it's very hard to know exact figures, have been speared away into re-education camps where they're being um, put through these efforts to try to uh, instill a sense of loyalty to Xi, who has a rapidly rising uh, personality cult. So that's one of the new things that's been happening. There have also been ongoing um, crackdowns on rights lawyers. Um, there's been more control um, efforts to push back against feminists than had been true in the past. So just a whole set of worrisome things are happening at the same time that um, Trump periodically lavishes praise on Xi, even when he's talking tough about issues of trade. Yeah, um, and tariffs, et cetera. China. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I think I think the fact is that actually when he talks tough, it's good for Xi, and when he praises uh, Xi, it's good for him, because the talking tough helps the kind of nationalist rhetoric of the West doesn't give us a chance, the West hasn't been fair. And I think this is true. I think you have that same kind of rhetoric of aggrieved nationalism that takes place mm -hmm. in Russia and in China that... Uh, Trump is helping. So Trump can't win. He can't be nice to him and he can't be mean to him. <laughs> is that what you're trying to well, say? Well, I think I, we need to take I, you to I, a re-education camp. <laughs> <laughs> he could be nicer to the people. He could actually be, have talked about a couple of the people who were um, who were human rights cases that people wished he would have brought attention to, What Trump could have done that. He, yes. he would have won in that sense. I think right. Angela Merkel, in a sense, is at the moment winning because Liu Xia uh, who was let out of um, uh, of house arrest ended up in Berlin after eight years in the U.S. after eight years, yeah. Yes, and she's the wife of the late Nobel Peace Prize winner who died in custody last year, Yu Xiaobo, right? Yeah, yeah, and I mean the the Leo so that's Xiaobo a big big dying. deal. It should have been an enormous deal. I mean, it was a big deal. The international press talked about it, but it, it should have been a really enormous deal. This was the first Nobel Peace Prize winner to die in um, incarcerated since Nazi times. That's right. And, you know, that should be just kind of a wake-up call, that this just isn't a kind of um, a normal um, country at the moment. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the deal or about how Merkel pressured the Chinese to let Liu Xiao out? Well, we don't really know much about the behind-the-scenes thing, but there was, um, there was an effort, a personal effort on her part to do this. And, and it fits in with a, a pattern that she's been more assertive about bringing up human rights issues than, um, I mean, not just Trump, but other, other uh, foreign leaders who are really intent on 
staying in the good graces of, of, of China, either because of uh, the Chinese government, either because of things they want or, or things they fear. I mean, I mentioned the um, issue with the Uyghurs. Um, Arab states haven't spoken out loudly and vociferously, Muslim states that you might imagine to um, call attention to this. China just can... Um, can you know can can exert a lot of clout? So Merkel seems to be one of the people who um, is less less cowed by that at the moment. She um, sees a space to step into, and she's stepping into it. Wasn't the U.S. a champion of Chinese human rights in the old days? Like I'm remembering Tiananmen Square. Yeah, no, and I think, and we can think of some um, dissidents in the past who were let out um, early from prison during due to medical conditions or things like that, who got on planes. In some cases, it was one of the times I first learned that there were direct flights from Beijing to Detroit <laughs> was when uh, a leading dissident was let out early and he left Beijing and landed in Detroit. And I said, okay, I guess we can fly there. Um, so there's been a pattern of that. And the U.S. has done this. Um, Hillary Clinton um, put forth the idea of women's rights being human rights when she was in Beijing at a U.N. Um, uh, meeting on, on women's rights. So there, there have been times in the past where the U.S. has certainly uh, stood up stronger and at least made some kind of effort. Um, they've also tended, I mean, much of what Trump's done with China, uh, just to be clear, a lot of what Trump's done with China isn't that far different from what other um, leaders have mm -hmm. done. Talking very tough about China on the campaign trail and then initially at least just trying to, to, work, to work together with the Chinese leader. That that was following a fairly traditional script. Yeah, because they're so off. strong, yeah. right? I mean, you yeah. can't just turn your back on them. Yeah, and there's, a, there, there's both the strength and there's always been this desire, this, this, this sort of dream uh, that America's had this long string China dream that somehow China's just on the cusp of somehow converting to be a country that we can, we can really work with in a good way, that it's just sort of one leader away from this kind of magical reunion between um, the There's been a lot of kind of starry-eyed hopes. I mean, Trump isn't the first one to say of a Chinese leader that he feels that, you know, this, this is the person we can work with. I mean, Carter had something of that. He didn't do it in the same personalistic way, but Carter certainly invested a lot of hopes on Deng Xiaoping, and Deng Xiaoping, while talking about economic trade and globalization and opening up to the world, was the person who called in the tanks uh, to clear For the in 1989. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking with Jeff Wasserstrom, co-author of China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, which was published earlier this year in an updated edition. So I just wanted you to make it clear to our listeners that Liu Xia, when she was released from eight years of house arrest, did not fly to Detroit. Where did she fly to? <laughs> She went to Sweden, and then she went on to Berlin. And one reason she went to Berlin, you know, the connection with, um, with Merkel is, is part of it, but it's also there are some very prominent um, critics of the Chinese government who are already there, who are friends. Um, Liaoyi Wu is a writer who's, who's, who's closest to uh, Liu Xiaobo when he was alive, and Liu Xia. But Ai Weiwei has also made the artist who um, John Wiener is very... Um, very fond of and has written about and talked about. Uh, Ai Weiwei is based in Berlin. So there are many ways in which the kind of this reinforces 
in a larger sense, this idea of Berlin emerging as the capital of the free world. Right, and Berlin, of course, is a place where artists want to be as well. So that that makes it a hub of cultural interest to the whole world. Um, yeah, and it's important. It's important to note that Liu Xia is a poet in her own right. That you know, so, so she's not just the wife for, and widow, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know. So she, like so many Chinese leaders, has always been a kind of a strong man, um, and so have many of the men who led governments that preceded his. Is it true that he's become a more ominous figure in the past two years? Is the the Uyghur situation is that worse than we've seen, you know, in recent memory in China? Explain Definitely. explain what people mean. I think it was Jim Fallows when they talk about the Great Leap backwards. Yeah, I think that, and I like that, that that is a phrase he used in a, in a good piece in the Atlantic a while back. I think what it is, is we're seeing things happening in China that we thought China used to do, but the Chinese Communist Party had kind of put behind it. Um, re-education camps used to exist, and then it was, it was seen as a very good thing when they, uh, when they stopped existing, but then this has come back. Um, there are starting to be, uh, there was a feeling in, from the mid-1990s up until about 2008, when I would go to China on a short trip, I would feel like um, there were zones of freedom had expanded. It, very gradually, but there was more you could talk about without worrying about um, getting in trouble for it. Um, the Chinese friends that you met seemed more comfortable telling um, political jokes even around, say, another Chinese person they had just met, whereas in an earlier period they would have had to be very guarded. Mm -hmm. It just got to feel that there were, you know, every year the bookstores would be seem less politicized spaces. And then during the last few years, it started before she took power, but especially since he took power in 2012 and 2013, that it's the opposite move. It's one step forward, two steps back. Uh, even some of the prison sentences that are being given out just, just this week, at the same time, that some of us were trying to, you know, were celebrating Liu Xia's release. Uh, somebody was convicted of subverting state power, the same thing that Liu Xiaobo had been convicted of, and he was given a 13-year sentence. Liu Xiaobo had only been given an 11-year sentence. And when he was given that 11-year sentence, people had said, 20 years ago, somebody got a 13-year sentence. At least there's a gradual change of sentences getting shorter. So those are the kinds of things that when you, you add them all up, it's a very disturbing um, it's a very disturbing situation, while at the same time, in some ways, China, uh, China under Xi Jinping, she himself is getting praised a lot, and the direction China is going is getting praised. In, in the nation piece, we mentioned that some prominent American CEOs like Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg have been very flattering of Xi Jinping in the direction he's taking the country. But just today, Elon Musk got back from China and tweeted about how it was a wonderful place, and he'd had great discussions with Chinese leaders. He didn't mention Xi, but here was, again, somebody very high profile in the United States uh, lavishing praise on the direction the country's going. And if she releases a, a fabled, basically, prisoner, uh, then he can paper over, maybe, for a while in the international media, the, the imprisonment, essentially, of the Uyghurs, Etc. All this backwards movement. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a strategic move, and it's a it's um, you know we we want we want people who are suffering to be to be let free. It's good that Leo mm -hmm. Shaw 
was that free, but it was also a way of diverting some attention just before the anniversary of her, her husband's death and incarceration. It changed the story, and we right. know how important it is to shift the narrative uh, in this country as well as, as in China. I mean, it's not shifting the narrative in China because control of this kind of information is, um, is controlled a lot, but it's shifting the international conversation at a time when all the focus would have been otherwise on the anniversary. Right, and when Elon Musk might then be embarrassed by having said all these nice (laughs) things. Now he can feel kind of good because at least she is free. Not she, right. but she. You're right. um, yeah. I know, I hate that that joke. It's so stupid. Um, Trump and she seem to be opposites personally. Uh, the former shoots from the hip and is crude. The latter comes off as kind of calm and careful. Do they also share some characteristics? Um, yeah, they do. I mean, another one they don't have. Xi Jinping talks a lot about being a great reader and all the things he reads and the literature of different countries he likes, and we don't hear that. Uh, from Trump. But what they have in common is, is I think they're both economic nationalists, and they both talk about restoring their country to an imagined period of greatness in the past. There's a kind of um, muscular nationalism with a strong uh, nostalgic uh, twist to it. She Make China great again, further. right? Make, Make China, China great again. Yeah, yeah or the, the Economist had uh, cover sort of mocking him saying party like it's 1793 <laughs> uh, but but there is this idea that you know china was the center of the world and was um the great um economic power and admired before this what in china's uh the chinese government calls the hundred years of humiliation the opium war defeat by the british mm-hmm. later the invasion by the japanese bullying by american imperialists and so forth and there was a lot of and bullying of China during that period, but it's playing on this kind of returning to this um, imagined past, and at the same time also taking, uh, having an idea that what his country represents is just one ethnic group within that country and mm-hmm. one uh, kind of tradition within that country. So I think we can recognize it, and hating the free press. You know, oh, I was going to mention his attitude. Recognize. Yeah. He you doesn't... know, that was... That was that was extraordinary. When, when Trump was in China in the past, when American presidents have gone to China, they've held a press conference, and one of the things that the American side has argued for is there needs to be at least one question. <laughs> right, I remember during this. During the press conference. Yeah, explain. And, you know, and, and the questions are not necessarily very searching, and, and the, the Chinese leader doesn't necessarily respond very candidly, but there is that one question, and there wasn't. That's amazing. Huh? Um, I wondered what you think now of what Liu Xiaobo said in 2009 after his conviction. He said, uh, there is no force that can put an end to the human quest for freedom, and China will in the end become a nation ruled by law where human rights reign supreme. What do you think, Jeff? Oh, gosh. I, uh, you know, I hate these kinds of predictive <laughs> questions. I mean, I, I do like, to, I always predict that at some point the Chinese Communist Party will fall or transform completely because no political system lasts forever. But I think assuming that there'll be one kind of thing on the horizon that will tip it that way, it'll depend on what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, it'll happen on a lot of other things. Leo Shabo also said the Internet, he thought, he wasn't alone in this, thought that the, the Internet would, um, would help to transform China, and it's definitely transformed China in many ways, but China has also transformed the Internet. And the way that it's controlled in China also serves the government as well as 
uh, serving people who challenge it. So, um, how tightly is it controlled I, now? Yeah. The internet it, it, it's, it's very tightly controlled, but I think the control. Um, there's a great new book about this, censored by uh, Margaret Roberts at Sandy, UC San Diego, where she talks about it's not just the fear that prevents things from being posted on the internet, or even the scrubbing away of things on the internet. It's also the flooding, which she calls, which is that the the government fills it with information that reinforces the lines that they want. So propaganda on the internet. Propaganda and advertising, you know, that you, you, you can be sort of a nerd to it, but you're still seeing all these, these signs for it. And they just make it harder for you to find the information you want to find by getting workarounds. And people can get around it. People can find ways, but it takes more time. So right. she talks about there being fear, friction, and flooding. All three of those allow the government to um, tame the Internet. Not so much. It still is. You can do great things on the internet. In China, it's great to find a place to eat, to hail a ride, to pay for. <laughs> yes, things, we know that from here. <laughs> you, know, you can do that, but it's even better there. That's the thing. You could do even more there and keep you distracted. I have and that's one. One of the things that I have, also helps. I have one yeah. quick closing question. It's really, it's really not that important. But what do you think about the recent scandal with Fan Bingbing, the the movie star, who makes forty million dollars a year? Do you know about this? I haven't followed it Oh, my closely. gosh. You must follow. They've said, the Chinese government has said that this is immoral. Nobody should make that much money. I wonder if the railroad, the corrupt railroad people in China used to make that much money. So there, there's enormous things to that. But one of the things in China, and this is the, I'm glad you asked that, because one of the reasons why Xi Jinping enjoys a certain degree of popularity is, this is another thing with Trump, too, that he has it not just make China great again, but drain the swamp. He's, been, he's, he's carried out very intense campaigns against corruption, in which largely the people who suffer are people who were not part of his group. But still, what a lot of people think is that in China, lots of people are getting rich using connections and doing other things that are unfair. And if some of them are suffering, that's a good thing. So it's good to hear... It's good to hear that there's a mirror image of what's happening here over there to to a degree. And, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was really fun. Oh, it's a pleasure. Okay. Thanks. I'm Amy Willens, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, what Donald Trump doesn't know about Haiti. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch, and I'm Amy Willens, live in L.A. on KPFK, sitting in for John Wiener. Coming up tonight at 4 on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry Quickly. But first, the streets of Port-au-Prince are burning again. Not since the Duvalier dictatorship fell 30 years ago have we seen riots like these. What's behind the violence, and where is Haiti headed? We're speaking with James North, an independent writer who has reported from Africa and Latin America for four decades. James has been following the news out of Haiti this week and last. He's the author of Freedom Rising, a firsthand account of apartheid in South Africa. If you want to see what he says about Haiti, follow him on Twitter at JamesNorth7. That's numeral seven. Hi, James. 
Hi, delighted to be here. I'm so glad you are. You know, I was just down in Haiti, and things were hard. There were demonstrations over the minimum wage, which is around $5 a day, actually less. And the poverty is just grueling and crushing and outrageous and seemed worse than ever, I thought. But that was three weeks ago. Tell us what happened last week in Haiti. Well, what happened last week was... Some of the coverage has used the word riots to describe what goes on there, and I I understand why they do that, but I think it would be better uh, to describe what happened as an uprising against the terrible political and economic system by people who see no other way to protest than by creating blockades in the street and by attacking certain targets. Right, and the uh, targets are chosen, right? I mean, absolutely. one thing one thing is that the uh, video is so great, so that's why they can say riots. I mean, if I looked at the videos of what happened last week, and if you frame it a certain way, it looks like any old riot, and no one knows what the building is that they're attacking. But can you explain a little more, James? Precisely. Basically, uh, what happened was that... Uh, people who feel that the political system has totally failed them there, that it's corrupt, that the government is to some extent imposed by the United States and the other rest of the people in the international community. And I agree, you know, I've been uh, going there uh, probably once a year for the last 15 years. And what's sad is the country continues to, the the poverty seems to continue to get worse. I mean, one sign of that was that uh, I was there last in April, a few months before you were, And, uh, you know, 100,000 Haitians went to Chile last year. I know. It's incredible. It's it's incredible. It's more difficult to get into the United States than elsewhere now. And so there were direct flights from uh, the Port-au-Prince airport, which you and I have been to many times, Mm -hmm. directly to Santiago de Chile with no no stops in between. 100,000 people. That's 1% of the population. And when people feel that much desperation, they're going to be—they're going to do what they need to do. And all it took was a was a trigger. And as you know, the trigger was this uh, sudden overnight hike in the uh, in the price of gasoline and oil. Can you explain why the government did that? There wasn't there a certain amount of pressure from the International Monetary Fund um, sure. on this government. Sure. I mean, nothing could sound more boring at first than uh, you know hike in transport. But the problem there is that. They were going to raise it 50% overnight. And what that would mean is most people in Haiti, as you know, do not own their own cars. But they take uh, various forms of transport that require gasoline or diesel. And so people who are scraping by, I mean, 60% of the people in that country live on less than $2.50 a day. And so you start to add, uh, you know, 25 or 50 cents to that for additional transport, and they're going to be in, in real trouble. And what the government did was it was really diabolical. As you know, Haitians are uh, big fans of Brazil in soccer. Uh, When Haiti doesn't manage to get into further competition, they shift their allegiance to Brazil for a variety of historical reasons. Yeah, we talked about it earlier. (laughs) All of Haiti comes to a standstill when Brazil is playing. When I was there in uh, April, they were playing someone else. Uh, It was in the lead-up to the World Cup, and there wasn't a car on the street. People were all sitting at home. In fact, the electricity is only available a few hours a day, because of shortages, but the electrical power companies make sure that it, it is available for the match. So what basically happened when the whole country was glued to their TVs, three or four ministers came on and announced that starting at midnight, the, uh, the price of uh, gasoline was going to go up. And, amid, and, and then I think they were hoping that Brazil would win the match, but when Brazil lost the match, that added to the rage. People poured into the streets, started blocking main uh, highways as a protest, threw up barricades, and started to attack, not indiscriminately, but they started to attack 
hotels like the Oasis Hotel in, in uh, up in uh, uh, in, you know, in, on the in way the up to P- Pichonville. Right, up in the wealthier area. Yeah. <clears throat> and what an interesting fact about this hotel is that it was built, it was rebuilt after the 2010 earthquake, and the uh, Clinton-Bush Fund put $2 million into this hotel, which is a luxury hotel. You know, no Haitian of any could ever afford to stay there. No Haitian visiting, really, from the United States other than the super elite could ever afford to and stay there. And Haitians hardly even work there. When I went in there at, at the beginning of its existence, after the Clinton-Bush right. Fund built it, it was uh, staffed by Dominican people. Right, right. So Haitians see this. And and then they look around the rest of their cities, and, 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 you know, particularly Port-au-Prince, where the earthquake hit the hardest, and what do they see? They see very little rebuilding is going on. I mean, my particular personal annoyance, and I've written about this several times, is that the National Art Museum, which you know is right on the corner of the Shaw Mars there, in the center you know, of town. was damaged in the earthquake eight years after the earthquake. You know, Haitian art is magnificent. Haitian art has a worldwide reputation. You know, Haitian art could attract a lot of tourism. But, you know, just as to Bilbao, you know, people go to the museum there. And the thing is, it's still not rebuilt. It's still sitting there, a hulk, and and there's nowhere in Haiti that you can see Haitian art. It's astonishing. It didn't appeal. It didn't appeal. And they started to attack, you know, not not individuals as much as they burned cars in the parking lot of the Oasis. I don't know, though, that it isn't individuals in a certain way. I think that there's a lot of feeling in Haiti right now that there's been a kind of state capture by... and this has always been true in Haiti. It's very obvious, like what we complain about in the U.S., about the teeny little group of rich people right. and the large numbers of poor and middle class people is even right. more visible in a smaller country. And it used to be said You're that right. there were 11 families that owned Haiti, ran Haiti, etc. Right. Now they say three families. And wow. and they're in charge of import-export, the kind of cars that come in, they bring in the yes. cars. So I think that's one reason these protests that became somewhat violent were directed at uh, Jeeps and SUVs outside a luxury hotel. I don't even know who runs that hotel, but I'm sure it's someone from one of these families. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, one study showed that you know, <clears throat> the point of raising the gas price is to cover a budget deficit because the, uh, it's a long story, but the Haitian government has been subsidizing the price of gas. Well, it was originally the Venezuelan government. But the fact is that, you know, one study shows that if they were to charge the import duties to these families and others, these families get their import duties reduced under special agreements, and if they were to charge the import duties that they should be paying, they wouldn't have had to raise the gas price, and, you know, 10 right. million Haitians would not have would not have been on the verge of suffering because right. of this. Right, and don't forget that when those transport costs go up, the cost of food goes up in the market, oh, too. Absolutely. So absolutely. I'm talking about Haiti with James North, a reporter who covers and comments on events in Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. You can follow him at JamesNorth7 on Twitter. That's numeral 7. So, you know, you talked about... Um, the unrest that was uh, that was seen as rioting in the eyes of the international media, but that right. unrest was effective. Absolutely, right? you know. I'm always reminded of a famous quotation, you know, from President Kennedy, who said, "People who make uh, peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable." <clears throat> and Haiti clearly needs a political revolution. I mean, God, I hope it's, you know, all of us hope it's not violent because uh, it, it, it's just awful when violence comes. But the fact is that, um, you know, if, uh, if it, it, within 24 hours, 
this uh, this uh, raise in uh, in the in the in the gas price was rescinded, and so it's back to square one. Now they're going to try and put something through again at some stage. But so far, uh, you know, this political protest, unorthodox as it was, was successful. And I believe no one was killed. Incredibly. I think three people were killed. Oh, really? I, think, I didn't see that. Yeah, I think there were three people I'm killed. Sorry. But, you know, some of the press reports, believe it or not, uh, the U.S. cable networks actually did briefly cover this, you know, given their appalling record on lack of foreign coverage. Yeah, but you know uh, why they cover it, because there's yeah, a riot. Yeah, they covered it because they, they trumped up a story that Americans who were visiting there and working there, missionary groups and so on, were in some kind of danger, which wasn't really true. I mean, They're uh, not the target. You know, Americans were not, U.S. citizens were not, <clears throat> the target of this uh, these protests, you know, the Haitian elite and the Haitian government were the target of this. Right, exactly. But now the gas prices will not go up. How will the Haitian government have any money in its coffers? Well, you know, what they need to do is start applying the tax rates to their own elite, but they won't do that because the elite are the ones who fund their political campaigns, which then enables them to get into office. And there's a tremendous amount of waste. You know, I, I was just reading the other day some statistic about the Haitian Senate and, and their, uh, you know, their, their, their parliament. They, they have, you know, thousands of employees that they don't really need. And believe me, as you know better than I, Haitians are very politically aware. They know exactly what goes on. They know who's getting what and who's not getting what. And, uh, you know, they, they saw this as the only way that they could conceivably protest. And I also would want to put in a word against the U.S. government here. I mean, well, first <laughs> Just, of all... It always uh, happens when you're talking about Haiti. Go ahead, James. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, get, let's hit Trump here, too. You know, this is another area of the world where he's, where he's making a bad situation worse. Um, don't say any swear words on the radio. <clears throat> no, 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 okay. no. Even uh, when you're you know, quoting Trump, the president no, of the United States. Use, Haiti is one of the countries that Trump used an obscene word to describe, which I won't say on the air. Thank you. Uh, but also, uh, what he's done is, uh, well, he, he doesn't, who, who knows, who Whoever's running his policy is, is, is ending what's called temporary protected status. There are about 58,000 Haitians in the United States who have this temporary status where they were here without papers, but after the earthquake um, hit, the feeling was that it wouldn't be safe to send them home. Uh, safe in the sense that, that you know, that they couldn't that, live they anywhere. Be able to make a livelihood or whatever. And, and that was continued on for some years. And now that's going to end, uh, I believe, in the middle of next year. Now, what's important to keep in mind about is that Haitians, you know, one out of ten Haitians live outside the country. And as you know, they send back, the latest figures I saw were $1.5 billion a year in remittances that they send. They go but to their Western Union office down the street, right. whether it's in New York or Miami or in Montreal, and they send, you know, grandma or their brother or their sister-in-law, you know, $25, $50, $100, and without this, Haiti would collapse. I mean, it's on the verge of collapse anyway, but it would certainly collapse. And, and, and that's why... 58,000 people home is going to contribute to further collapse. That's right. That's why they didn't do it in the first place. And right. to do it now is, is, is a... No, it's just, it's, crea it's going to create, you know, it's already a humanitarian crisis, and it's going to create a humanitarian disaster, together with other factors. I was reading anyway. someone today who said it's a medieval situation in Haiti with people walking around in bare feet, you know, uh, toilets that are outhouses, that are pit yes. toilets, and uh, soldiers wearing epaulets at the same time, that it's really... Right. Uh, it's a dire situation, then, and it's in total contravention. It's an entire country in contravention of the Declaration of Human Rights. 
You're absolutely right. And what, what, and, and what strikes anyone visiting Haiti, and I should add that part of the reason I went there in the first place was that um, I was motivated uh, by some of the work that you've done, particularly your first book, The Rainy Season, and I've now uh, enjoyed reading Farewell, Fred Voodoo as well. Thank you. What, stri- what strikes me, you know, what struck me, you know, I, I've worked in 80 or 90 different countries around the world over a long period of time. And what strikes me is the paradox of Haiti is that it's one of the poorest countries I've ever I've ever been in. I've been in others, but it's it's there. It's in that category. And yet the people are the most, some of the hardest working people I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they bustle around Central Port-au-Prince. They make Unbelievable. New York look lazy. Not lazy, but you know, they're, everybody's doing something in, That's in right. Port-au-Prince. Haitians, the hardest working, working people they're in the world. They're cleaning. They're polishing. They're manufacturing. James, their unfortunately, we're running out of time, and there's so many other. things things Haitians do. Um, But I've really enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Laurent Dubois and Alan Minsky and Jeff Wasserstrom. Thanks also to our engineer, D'Angela Jones, and to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up tonight at 4 on KPFK, This is happening, Jerry Quickly. Trump Watch returns next week at this same time, on this same station, with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm Amy Willens, sitting in for John Wiener. Thanks for listening.